Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and mega trends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Employee onboarding, what employers must know. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy with Assure, and this is a really important topic. Uh, a recent survey by Gallup showed that just 12% of employees strongly agree their organization does a great job of onboarding new employees. And with a labor market as tight as it is, we're in a 50-year trough uh, at the bottom for unemployment rates are about 33.5%. You can't afford to get this wrong, right? It's hard enough to find great talent. When you get great talent or mediocre talent, you better do the very best you can bringing them out of the organization orienting them to your culture, your mission, your vision, your values, and get them as productive as you possibly can. So this is, a, I think, uh, something that employers maybe overlook. And it's probably pretty easy to do right, but you got to think about it and be proactive about it. So uh, the perfect guest, to, uh, if you, you guys are regular watchers of the show, you know Mary Simmons. Uh, Mary is our VP of HR Compliance at Assure. She's a SHRM certified professional. And for the last eight years, she has been an adjunct professor at the New York Institute of Technology. Uh, prior to Assure, Mary was the director of HR consulting for a 58-year-old HR consulting firm in New York. Mary, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, Mary, what, what do you see as you're talking to clients day by day? Uh, where do you see, I guess, maybe the best practices in employee onboarding? Where are some of the low-hanging fruit opportunities that maybe Maybe people don't get it so right. I, I really like what you said. You know, you know the old adage, we only get one chance to make a good first impression. Right. And, you know, whether you have remote employees or employees that are coming on site, you really have to do a good job with the onboarding process. And we're going to talk about compliance and the paperwork that they need. But can we just talk about basics you need to make the person feel welcome because, yeah. you know, we spend more waking hours at work than we do at home in most cases. If the employee is not comfortable, they're not going to be engaged. If they're not engaged, they're not productive and they're probably not going to stay. So think about what you want to do culturally and then I can help you with the compliance piece. I can help you with the cultural piece too. But don't forget about the cultural piece. Don't forget that this is a new individual, whether it's a top executive like, you know, Mike Vinoy, you know, hotshot marketing, you know, uh, person or somebody who's entry level. We have to make everybody feel welcome. So, you know, let's, let's not forget about that because we want to retain the best talent. You know what? I, I think uh, I don't have a stat on this. I don't know if a stat does exist, but just anecdotally, when I talk to business owners um, and just even internally, I, I've never seen so many instances 
where you have a new hire, they accept a job, and they're only one or two or three weeks into the job, and they give their notice because they're taking something else. And the reason is there are more job openings than there are workers. Unemployment at 3.5%. When someone, and that might sound to an old school person like me, that's like, oh, that, you know, they were good riddance. They weren't, they weren't meant for us in the first place. Well, the, the war for talent is real and it's not going away, right? And right. the candidate that you made that offer to, guess what? They were probably interviewing with two or three or 10 other places. And if a materially better offer comes in after their start date, it's, it's, it, it could be very tempting for these folks, right? So this isn't just about the job description. Do you have a ping pong table? Do you have free M&Ms? <laughs> Uh, what's their salary? What are the benefit packages? Of course, that's all part of the big picture. How you make them feel versus how uh, a, a competitive offer makes them feel wanted is a really big deal, right? Oh, it's it's huge. And I think I think that stat that you gave from the Gallup poll is yeah. very telling, right? If only 12% of new hires think their organization did a good job, then there's a lot of employers that are doing a poor job, which may cause that turnover. And I can back that up because we do exit interviews for our clients and yeah. we run those stats, right? And, you know, I can think of one employer that we, they just could not understand why people were leaving don't even say first three months, they were leaving in the first couple of weeks. And they yeah. were like, we go through this whole interview process, onboarding process, we start training them. That's a lot of man hours and a lot of cost right there. And then they leave, I, you know, literally their hands, your head was in their hands, like going, oh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So we started doing these exit interviews and we also started looking strategically at their onboarding process. And there was a lot of holds, Mike. And that's why I can say that you really have to make employees feel welcome. We created a process that was efficient, right? Because some of the managers were frustrated. It was taking so long and they had a, a part in the onboarding and they're like, I don't have time for this long training. And it, and it came across to the new employees who were then overwhelmed, right? By, you know, too much too soon. Right. Um, so looking at it from a strategic standpoint, as well as culturally and compliant, that's what's going to give each organization their own onboarding. We're going to talk about compliance, like I said, but I want every listener to say, I know my organization, you know, your organization better than anybody. If you can articulate that to, you know, experts like my team or whomever you work with and also make that strategic, efficient, then you're going to, you know, make the, um, you know, you're going to make the onboarding process successful. Yeah. Hey, Mary, let, I, I kind of want to break this conversation up in, in, into maybe these two buckets. And, and I, I know you probably hate it when I say uh, <laughs> compliance versus strategic, because you're correct when you say compliance is strategic, Mike. <laughs> it has <laughs> part of a business strategy, right? <laughs> but but uh, some some things like an employee handbook, right? And, and I'm looking at uh, stats from the SMB 
HR benchmark report that we did when we surveyed 2,065 small businesses. In uh, 40% of the companies who didn't grow last year, so shrinking companies and flat companies, 40% of those companies uh, did not have an employee handbook updated in the last 12 months. So uh, where, where does an employee handbook come in? I guess, you know, certainly from a compliance perspective, why is it important? But why is it especially important for an employee onboarding experience? So and that's okay. I do appreciate, like, let's look at it strategically. Why do you need, need an employee handbook? We've had, you know, webinars on employee handbooks and you, you and I have, you know, made the point that it's not mandated by state or federal law to have a handbook. That being said, there's a lot of policies that you need to have in the, that you need to give your employees. So you might as well put it in one place. And you want to give that good impression to the employee and make it easy for them. So strategically, your handbook is definitely a marketing tool for your organization's culture and what sets you apart. That's why we spend five to 10 hours creating an employee handbook for the clients that we work with because we customize every policy that can be customized. We believe that that handbook should start with a letter from the CEO or the owner to talk about the culture, to welcome the employees, right? One place for employees to see, look, the first question that, that's on everybody's mind is, when do I get off? <laughs> and But there's different ways to say that. There's different ways for those time off policies to meet the requirements within your state um, and the federal government, right? So it is strategic and compliant, right? Yes. You, yes. you know, and and look, nowadays it that handbook becomes very complex because I have very few clients, very few, Mike. I would say mm, 20 to 30% of the clients I support are in only one state and one municipality. Even if they're in one state, they're in more than one municipality and that can make the law different. So the employer is now you know, faced with the decision. I have 50 employees in Washington state, which means they're, they get uh, FMLA, family medical leave. I only have 20 employees in Tennessee. Do I extend a similar policy to my employees in Tennessee? These are the conversations that the employer needs to have. These are the strategic things that they need to think about. And you can't forget the one remote employee you have in the other states. And and I'm, I'm telling everybody has, um, you know, I shouldn't say everybody because that that's untrue. But I would say I only have 20 to 30 percent of the clients we support in one state, in one location in that yeah. state. Yeah, in increasingly, especially post-COVID. But this is a continuum that was well under its way for, the, for 10, 20 years that uh, you, you might do business in one state, one location, one building that people report to. All it takes is one employee who works in a different, maybe even the same state, but different city, county, or perhaps a different state, some, 
and that may be different laws that you must comply with. So can you give an example, Mary? Um, I, I want to paint a really clear picture here. So handbook, good. Here's the rules of the of, of the road, and it protects me as an employer. So it's a bit of an insurance policy, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing a CYA here. Okay, make sure everybody understands and that they sign off on an annual basis to these are the rules. But that feels very legalistic. Can you give like a real life example? What would the talk track look like explaining a leave policy and how that ties back to, say, my culture that I'm trying to create? I really like that you use that example. And I'm going to sort of combine strategic and compliance because that's what I do Um, to say that. You know, if you have a PTO policy, that should be looked at every year. And the reason for that is not only compliance wise, but strategic wise. So if let's say you do a SWOT analysis on your organization, where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses, where are your opportunities, where are your threats? Some of that information is going to be a comparison between you and your competitor. You need to be looking at your PTO policy every day to say, Does it match the culture I have? I say I'm a family-oriented organization. Do I give enough PTO? How does it compare to my competitors? Are my competitors giving, say, an unlimited PTO policy and mine's pretty tight? Am I losing talent because of that PTO policy? Is it explained properly? And of course, you have to look at it for compliance reasons. So a lot of times employers will say, well, If you say there's no new laws, Mary, why am I looking at my handbook every 12 months? You might need to look at it, look at it even more often than that, because the time off policies and we're just using that as an example. There's a lot of other policies in there. Um, Any time off policy is going to be important to your employees. So do you reflect your culture and your population? If you have an aging, I have one um, employer and I will tell you that, you know, the business has been around 65 years and maybe employees haven't been there 65 years, but he does have 30, 40 year long tenured employees. Well, they're looking for different things in the handbook than somebody who's brand new. How are you looking at your population, your competitors your culture when you're doing your handbook. Very important. Yeah. <clears throat> I uh, I interviewed someone on this show, uh, Elizabeth Gore is her name. She's a small business consultant. I'd say she's the entrepreneur of all entre- four entrepreneurs, provides uh, financing and consulting services to small businesses. She's a small business herself. One of the things that she has in, in her uh, mission, vision, values is, hey, we're a small company. We wear many hats. <clears throat> and she wanted to get ahead of this culturally that at this company, everyone takes out the trash. Uh, that there, There's an example of something I think, you know, I want your opinion. It's not compliance. There's no Department of Labor uh, regulation that says who does and doesn't take out trash. It's not part of any union contractor. It's nothing like that. But she wanted to have a handbook that would incorporate both the legal requirements and the culture, the tone she was trying to set as a company that, hey, nobody's above any, nobody's more important than any job here, right? I'm, I'm the founder, I'm the CEO, and even I take out the trash here. I make coffee, you know, I, I, ref, I, I and so 
kind of wove that into the talk track for onboarding employees and talking to them in, in a way that combined both the compliance-oriented components and the strategic components of, of culture. What, what, I'm curious what your, your thoughts on and how you would implement that example. So I think that the onboarding uh, <clears throat> process also has to set expectations and your handbook's going to do a large part of that, but you also want to set expectations within that whole onboarding process, right? You know, what, what policies do you bring to light? She chose to bring that to light. And I'm, I'm smiling because I support a small real estate office um, and they actually had somebody resign because they asked her to take out the trash. So she's smart to make expectations clear at the beginning. Keep yeah. it culturally sound. Don't make it sound like it's a punishment. Right. And you you right. can't you know, you can't list every single thing that everybody's going to do. That would be impossible. But having a frank conversation that it's a good thing that we all wear hats because we're a small organization and it comes with its challenges because we all have to take out the trash. That should be a talk track that whoever's doing the onboarding. And I would say that part of the onboarding is an orientation to the to the organization. That's one of the things that we moved into place for the organization that that I said had that high turnover in the first couple of weeks because they were just like kind of like a factory, right? Come in, fill out your I-9, fill out this, fill out this. Okay, your desk is over there, <laughs> right? And people were like, um, right, there's got to be something more to it. So um, be purposeful in your onboarding, add an orientation. This is what the organization is about. This is our mission, vision. Um, and this is where you fit into the organization. And I will also add that I'm a firm believer that diversity, equity, and inclusion should be um, included in an onboarding process to make everybody feel welcome and for, so that they understand they're going to be fully heard. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm can you give some coaching on where the line is drawn? So like a business size, uh, real life example, uh, it was a partner. We had, we'd founded a company. This is, you know, 15 plus years ago. Um, and uh, one of my partners wanted something that I, I viewed as overly legalistic <clears throat> as an onboarding document in any attempt I made at uh, uh, bringing some humanity to the document and maybe even some levity and some, some culture uh, was met with resistance. He and I had a disagreement. He wanted this to be a legal document and you would have other documents and PowerPoints and training and videos or whatever else you would do to drive the culture, but you keep a handbook separate and keep it uh, very legalistic. Um, if I love the idea of combining, but you can also probably go too far and make this a culture document that, oh, by the way, has some legal requirements versus uh, versus the, the, the opposite of that. Where, where do you think you should draw the line and what belongs in handbook versus, say, other artifacts that help you to drive and communicate culture? I mean, I would, you know, I would uh, suggest that you can combine them. For example, this real estate office. Um, <clears throat> sells to five harbors. That's kind of their 
um, branding. And so I did the handbook in blue ink and put a beautiful picture of um, some of the harbors in the beginning of the handbook where you can't really take too much latitude is when it's a legal document, yeah. right? So a legal policy. So you can't take too much, um, you know, you can't make too many changes when it's, you know, the say, FMLA you know, is the FMLA. Policy. You don't yes. try sugarcoating it. You actually hurt yourself. You could put yourself at risk. Right, right, right. right. So there's going to be legal documents within that, um, within that in blue ink, right? Um, with the logo in the corner, which is, you know, beautiful. That's okay. Um, but I will say this, every, and, and we have a, a, a webinar on handbook, so I don't want to go too much into the handbook, but there are some documents um, like a confidentiality agreement which should be pulled out of the handbook because it's a legal document and the handbook will say at the beginning, if I write it or if my team writes it, um, this is not this is not a contract of employment. You don't want it to appear like a contract, even though the employee you right. want the employee to sign off on it, where a confidentiality agreement is a contract. So there are instances where you will have legal documents like a commission agreement. That should not go in the handbook. That is separate. It is individual and it gets signed. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on handbooks. So I, I cited the 40% of companies who did not grow last year. So shrinking companies and flat companies, 40% uh, of those uh, uh, don't, don't have a handbook, right? So 60% do. It's 80% of the fast growing companies do. And so uh, I've said this on the show before. I, 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 people like you are put on earth to help people make their handbooks better and compliant. Um, but I think employers who simply do it, even if they do it badly, the fact that you are put the time, effort, energy into creating a handbook, I think is an important signal to your employees that you care about this. You're trying your best to communicate, even if you're fumbling your way through it. And, and the data is clear because our survey, we didn't we didn't have any quantitative measures to, to say whether these are good handbooks or bad handbooks. It was just binary. Did you have one or didn't did you not have one? And it's a it's a difference of 20%. 60% of flat and shrinking companies have them, 80% of fast growth companies have them. So it's clear you should do it. It has an impact on your onboarding process, which presumably has an impact on employee downstream employee productivity. Uh, uh, which is why we're talking about it today. Any Anything you would add there uh, without turning this in a, into a handbook uh, uh, only uh, uh, show uh, on the importance of and how you should be using handbooks as part of the onboarding process? I, I would just say, because, you know, I've got the compliance hat on uh, maybe more than you. I would say that if you're going to do a handbook, get some assistance with it. Don't borrow you know, your friends handbook from their organization, because there's a reason they take us five to 10 hours and we're experts. We probably yeah. do 20 handbooks a week. Yeah. So we're pretty good at them and it still takes us five to 10 hours to customize it. So you might yeah. not have the culture piece, but getting that compliance piece correct is difficult. 
And I would add that um, you're probably right that if you took your friends or you took one off of Google, um, it might be 80% correct. It might be 98% correct. It's that 2% that kills you because you could literally be publishing things that are legally inaccurate and that's where you get blown up, right? Uh, you, You have to be compliant and no two companies fit the exact same scenarios um, you know, you, you could, you might think you're really, really, really close and maybe you are very similar, but almost yeah. no two companies have the exact same handbook for a reason. So right. let's, let's move on to a first day checklist. So, um, we've, we've hired this, uh, great person. Um, you know, we, ho- hopefully we've, uh, done a good job recruiting and, uh, uh, interviewing process. Now, uh, they're, they're we're onboarding them. You know, we've talked I-9s and employee handbook and stuff. That's maybe a kind of first day kind of thing. But uh, what's the value of, uh, we'll call it a first day checklist, but like like when we onboard, say, a salesperson, I mean, we have a 12 weeks scripted out, over 100 steps. Some of them, you know, we really control their time, week number one, week number two, some more flexibility. You eventually move to like on-demand oriented content. What, what's your coaching here around uh, day one, month one checklists? I think that employees, again, they want expectations to be clear. That checklist is going to cover that. But I always talk about consistency, Mike. We have to be consistent. <clears throat> and even if we make our expectations clear, if we don't give the proper training, introduction, communication, our new employees are never going to meet the expectations that we set forth. We have to support them and having a first day checklist. And as you were saying, I would continue that to a first week, first month, three months um, checklist as far as, you know, what is the paperwork that we're taking from getting from the employee? What are they going to do? And making those um clear to the employee, I think a lot of times that's going to add to the comfort level. And then we're consistent and efficient. Remember the example I gave you, the managers at the organization that had that high turnover were very frustrated because they didn't have any checklist. So they were like, oh, I forgot to do that. And then, you know, they're chasing the employee and then it's taking even more time. There was just no organized process. And so after we do an employee handbook, part of a HR audit that we do is going to be going over some of this with clients. And an HR audit takes a lot of time. And we've talked about that on other webinars. If the client doesn't have the time for that, I'm going to work on a first day checklist, um, and try to get some continuum going here for the onboarding because it's very important we get it right the first time. And that means you have to have consistency and a process. And the checklist is just going to guide you and the new employee to to, to be consistent. Yeah. Uh, the, the data in our survey is similar when it comes to new hire checklists as, as it is uh, employee handbooks. One in three companies that didn't experience growth last year, they do not have a first day checklist. Um, eight in 10 of the growing companies do have a checklist. So there's a clear gap between those uh, growing companies do this, flatten shrinking companies, 
more commonly do not do this. So um, this is an area where I feel like because there is there is at least some of a, an employee handbook that is a bit of a it's a compliant. There's a compliance component. There's a legalistic component to it um, that you got to get that right in the culture additive stuff. It leaves you room to improve your handbook. To me, the checklist, this is one of those things that <clears throat> same rule perhaps applies. The simple fact that you've done it and, you, and you've created it uh, d does perhaps signal something to your employees. But when I've workshopped things like this uh, uh, with, with team before, okay, what, what are the first day activities that you want some, someone to do? You can rattle off the first two or three or maybe five. When, once it gets to like 10, it gets really hard. Once it gets to 20, <clears throat> I think the biggest benefit, again, even if it's, even the, ch the checklists aren't amazing, <clears throat> it forces employers to think, okay, what are the steps? What are all the things we really want them to do? <clears throat> and so, A, it forces you to think through the process at a, at a, at a depth that you would other, otherwise probably underestimate. And then, B, it almost creates a checklist of like, Oh, well, I want to have employees trained on this topic, but we don't have a curriculum for that. I don't even have a PowerPoint on that. I don't have a Word doc or a PDF or a poster on that. So it almost creates this stage, this list of content and curriculum and assets you're going to need to create to then support that, which kind of comes downstream. G give me your thoughts on that. I agree. I don't think you know, we can make this as big as we want or as small as we want. So the first day checklist, you know, maybe you did the I-9 already, but, you know, you want to make sure that you have the legal forms, right? So I-9's top of the list because everybody listening has to have an I-9 for every single employee. Uh, and then New York and California and some other states have you know, wage theft forms that have to be filled out. You want emergency contacts. But beyond that, what else is on that first day checklist? Is somebody, and I know this sounds really simple, but who's turning on the computer or did they get sent a computer if they're remote? Um, yeah. You know, what meetings do they need to be added to? What um, introductions need to happen? Uh, where are pertinent information, be it online or be it physical if they're on site. There needs to be some key things so that that individual feels welcome, but yeah. so that they can start working, Mike. How many times have you started a new job and you're just kind of sitting at your desk like, okay, nobody told me what to do. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you really want to make this you know, detailed, but I don't want small employers to go, Mary, I don't have the time to do this, right? Because it could just be, I need to gather these forms. I'd included emergency contact. And then there's a couple of key things. Where are the bathrooms? When do they get breaks? What are the basic hours? Even for exempt employees, yeah. right? Who do they need to get introduced to? There needs to be some basic compliance, and some basic cultural items on that first day checklist. That, that's really well said, Mary, because my brain was naturally gravitating towards training and thinking productivity, how do they do their jobs better? And there's really probably no end to how far you can go. Uh, and that just every new thing you add to your checklist 
creates another content development curriculum development requirement for for your for training, right? <clears throat> but we would be remiss to just skip the simple stuff like when you open your computer, is the first email in your inbox a welcome from your boss that is so excited to, to for you to join the company? And that's the first thing that's in your inbox. When you open uh, your calendar for the first time, are there already one-on-one -on -one meetings with key people in the organization for you to have an introduction call with? Uh, is there a set time blocked for you to uh, uh, walk around with uh, a, a mentor or a buddy system to just learn how does the coffee machine actually work, right? I mean, uh, how, how, here's what happens culturally. You know, everybody takes that garbage here. Everybody refills the pot. So if you take the last cup of coffee, uh, make sure to refill it. By the way, let me just show you how that works, right? The impact of, the, of making people not feel uncomfortable and lost. Oh, my gosh, what do I do on my first day? That's, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, just, I, I keep saying this, you're signaling to the employee, you've thought through these things because you care about them and you want them to feel comfortable. You want them to feel accepted. You, you, you want them to be successful here. So you're going to, to, uh, to additional links to make that happen. Correct. Agreed. Yeah. Yep. Where do you see Mary? So I think we talked two big buckets in the, and we hit these in our survey uh, employee handbook in, in uh, day one checklists. I think we covered those pretty good. Where do you see the biggest opportunities for improvement, whether it's better handbooks, better checklists, or where are, wherever else? Maybe what, what are the gaps that you see, you know, you and your team, you talk to clients every single day. When you onboard a new client, what, what are the common pitfalls uh, and maybe the lowest areas of lowest hanging fruit for folks? I think it, you know, now that we can utilize and leverage software to automate these steps, whether the employee's remote or not, it's really nice to have it automated. It's going to make it easier for the employer, number one, because then all the forms are stored electronically um, in, the, in that piece of technology, that system. Yeah. Uh, number two, I think it makes it easier for the employees, right? I, I I work for Chase Manhattan Bank. I used to bring 20 people into, you know, an onboarding situation and hand out the paperwork or had even if I had a little folder, collect it. I, you know, gone are the days that I think we need to do that. So, you know, Assure has, you know, a really nice piece of software yeah. where I my team would help the employer leverage that technology so that everything is automated. Look, it makes you look more professional. That's one thing. But the other thing is this is going to make it consistent and it's also just going to save <clears throat> the employer so much time that there's just yeah. no comparison. That's a, that's a good segue to maybe where we close. Um, I opened at the top the Gallup survey, 12% of employees say that they have a good onboarding experience with their employer, right? So uh, uh, I think we've mostly focused this from the lens of the employee, how to improve their experience. What are, the, what are some of the beneficial outcomes for employers by improving the onboarding process? I think, you know, engagement is probably the best um, 
effect of having a really positive uh, onboarding experience for a new employee. And engagement is really important, right, Mike? So it lends to an employee being retained by the employer, but it also will lead to increased productivity. If we give the employee the tools to do their job, and I would say a positive, effective onboarding process is starting them with the tools that they need, that employee is going to be more productive and less likely to leave us. These polls prove that, and so does you know my experience doing the exit interviews with clients. Yeah, yeah. And I and I and I, I think you're spot on. And I keep coming back to what I think is another side of that same coin. You know, uh, I'll date myself, but you know, 20 and 25 years ago, being part of teams, uh, going through Six Sigma training when that was uh, you know in vogue in, in corporate America, and maybe we were collapsing a function out of multiple offices into a data center, or maybe we we're uh, outsourcing a process uh, offshore or something, uh, where these things failed is when you would say, okay, we're just going to consolidate this. And all you do is con consolidate the, the human beings. You know, now these people are going to do what those people did. If you don't document the processes, then all the white space that exists between those processes, you don't know about it in, in your, in your change, in, change, whether it's outsourcing or consolidation, it fails miserably. <clears throat> and, and to do, say, outsourcing or process reengineering right, you have to document the process. And to me, that's the beauty and, and one of the hidden benefits that employers might not think about. Uh, obviously, you want to improve uh, productivity of your employees, uh, time to productivity, uh, reduce uh, turnover, save time in the process. All those are, I'd say, obvious things that you want to want to try to achieve. I think hidden benefit here is by you simply documenting it and laying out the process, things are going to be revealed to you that's like, Oh wait a minute! We're actually not very good at that. I need to. I need to. We need to shore up this. We, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot this, or we need better documentation there, or hey, we better update this PowerPoint deck, or uh, or whatever the case may be. But simply the act of documenting it and putting it on paper forces you to get better because it makes you more aware of of how things actually work or should work. Mary, anything you'd want to say in closing on this topic about best practices around onboarding? I would just add that, you know, I want, I agree with you wholeheartedly that there needs to be a process, right, that's efficient and compliant. But don't forget about the communication that goes along with this onboarding process, right? So how are we communicating why we we are asking them for certain paperwork? Everybody knows you have to do the I-9, but, you know, you might have a younger you know, person that you just hired and you may need to explain what that is. So there has to be clear, concise and culturally sound communication to go along with our effective compliant onboarding yeah. process. Right. So, you know, you know, talking to that new employee um, in a friendly tone, explaining yeah. each of the things that we're doing and why we are doing them. So the effectiveness absolutely has to be there. Don't forget about the positive communication to go along with it. 
Yeah, I think that's so important. I joke and have used this example before, but you walk into a place of business uh, and there's a poster on the back wall that says our customers are number one priority. Meanwhile, the person at the front desk never looks up, never makes eye contact, is on the phone with somebody on a personal call. They don't acknowledge your presence. Who cares what the sign says? It's the behaviors that communicate the culture to you. If Correct. you could have the perfectly architected and most beautifully laid out and designed and copywritten uh, handbook and day one checklist, if all you do is email it to them, you don't even know if they're going to read the darn thing, let alone if they do, will it have the same effect? You have to deliver these things. You have to communicate it. You got to validate. This is what I said. Do you understand what I said? And I'll, I'll repeat. Here's what I said, right? It's, it's, it's not the artifact in and of itself that's so important. It is actually from a, from a compliance perspective, perhaps. Uh, but but it, it is that communication to help you have a better relationship and understanding of expectations with the employees. Agreed. Yeah. All right, Mary. Always enjoy it. Important topic. Thank you. We're going to continue on this theme as we, as we talk about the discrete areas of from pre-employment all the way through post-employment. We want to make sure everybody understands what the traps are, but also what some of the low-hanging uh, fruit best practices are. So more to come on this continuum of the employee life cycle. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.